Hello and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we are going to be speaking, well, I should say I will be speaking about the impact of political, economic, and environmental stress on us, on our human body, mind, heart, and soul. That's right. You know, we're aware on different levels of what happens to us, for instance, when we read the news. We pick up a newspaper, we uh, look online, we listen to the radio, we watch TV, and we hear all sorts of news, most of which is not very pleasant, quite honestly. Occasionally, we get some pleasant news of heroes doing fantastic, spectacular things, saving babies from burning houses and uh, people just uh, doing wonderful things for each other. And that just warms our hearts, saving animals from being either, uh, you know, in trouble physically or being stolen or what have you. It, It warms our hearts when we hear these stories of kindness, of bravery, of courage, of generosity. And I'd love to see the news and all of journalism populated with such stories. Uh, It's very, very empowering and uplifting. Yay! And we also want to know what's going on on the uh, other end of the spectrum as the pendulum swings in the other direction of what people are doing to each other and what the weather is in some way doing to us these days um, as a result, truly, of anthropogenic activity. We have no confusion about that one. And overall, what's going on in the body politic and the body economic? And we feel the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune over and over again as we listen, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, morning, noon, and night. It's no nothing short of an assault on our senses on our appreciation of beauty, of our appreciation of the higher points of human consciousness and sentient life, uh, the magnificence of music, all of this sort of gets temporarily washed away um, while we contemplate uh, the ravages that are happening, for instance, right now based on The latest hurricane, Hurricane Dorian, which will, in a sense, um, uh, take this talk, this podcast, and lock it into time and space of late August, early September of 2019, where it appropriately resides. But it has, I will dare to say, perennial application, because what we're really talking about in many ways is the uh, nature of life and human nature. And those seem to continue on in a rather unbroken, uninterrupted stream of, well, let's just say the archetypal fields and patterns that govern human beings are many and oftentimes rather complicated and complex. Uh, And tend to be um, uh, 
how do I say, mussed around with by the shadow. So that's not a cartoon in this case at all. So coming back to the subject, if you really scrutinize the kinds of information that are coming through our senses moment to moment when, you know, leading our lives, but I'm really focusing now more on the media specifically. When we look at the type of information, the content of the information, even the nature of the delivery of the information, um, there is much that could be said to be nothing short of an assault on our senses, as I said before. It really is. It's, it's, it's painful when we see what people say to each other or say to the public uh, or what people do to each other, even simply what some people think. The rampant racism, anti-Semitism, uh, classism, um, it goes on and on the way we judge each other, belittle each other, condescend to each other, speak poorly about each other, insult each other, injure each other. It's all a form of injury, quite honestly, whether it's emotional, verbal, or psychological, or physical. They are all forms of harm and all forms of injury. Even in nonverbal communication of, of uh, you know, holding up one's nose or making a critical face in the face of someone saying something that you find disagreeable. All of these are forms of communication that we all have certain types of reactions to. Now, we can be governed by those reactions or not. I would wager to say most are governed by them, but I will also wager to say that we don't have to be, that there is a level of self-governance, if you will, that can really shift the energy field that governs typical reactivity. We can work with it, and in a sense, we can rewire our neuronal uh, network and connections. It doesn't have to go in the same kind of neurochemically charged, emotionally charged direction that happens to be habitual. And that's that's big news, folks. That's important news. Maybe the best news of today's show, uh, that we're not victim to these types of phenomena. But let's, let's look a little more closely at the phenomenon of newscasting as it occurs through most media, which is commercial media, which is corporate media, which is all-for-profit media. Distinct, by the way, contradistinct from A Better World Radio and TV and numerous other uh, broadcasting media. Uh, Progressive Radio Network, for instance, to some extent also Democracy Now!, uh, and many online, uh, Politico, uh, Truth Dig, Truth Out. There are numerous media outlets, The Intercept, that are intercepting 
the usual flow of information that is oftentimes shaped and tailored and narrowed to fit a certain kind of perspective that is considered within, well, to some extent, social norms. This president of the United States, though, breaks and shatters all norms of every sort. And while being a bit iconoclastic, I think, is a very healthy thing. I'm going to also say that I think there are ways of doing it that are constructive and other ways of doing it that are very destructive. And it's the latter that I see us experiencing literally day by day, almost tweet by tweet. I mean, who ever heard of running a government by Twitter? I mean, it's insane. Um, he doesn't really run the government. He just barks orders and hopes people listen. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Thankfully, there are enough people in government in unelected positions that have been around for a long time, much longer than the elected officials. And what I think I see is many of them just don't even listen. They don't even look in his direction. His barks and commands are not within his jurisdiction to do, yet he does. And they just shrug their shoulders and go, uh-huh, thanks. Have another cup of coffee <laughs> or what have you. And um, really pay him little heed and little mind. That's my reading of the field. It's not always the case, but it's largely the case. Plus, he forgets what he says. Plus, he doesn't care what he says. He's all for effect at the moment. He's all for headlines. He's also all for self-congratulation. And it is a problem. And so, there's a bottom line here on the political effect and impact of stress on our systems. And that's this. When we are abused verbally, I don't have to tell you what kind of impact that would have on our immune system, on our mood, on our even circulation. It can drive up blood pressure. It can have us be uh, outraged. It could drive anger. Um, it can have all of these sort of downstream effects. But there's one in particular that I want to really bring to the foreground here, and that is the effect of incessant lying. Actually, even a single lie can have this effect depending on the context. And that is, well, I'm going to cite an example that goes way back into the days I was in graduate school studying psychology. And I seem to recall the work of a certain systems uh, thinker, psychotherapist named Jay Haley, who made the observation in working with the family that when the parents lied, the child knowing that it was a lie on some subconscious level, not consciously, started to have physiological reactions and mental emotional. In fact, it got to a point of causing what was considered a psychotic episode. Now, you could say that's extreme. 
and it is. I can't recreate here all of the conditions and variables and contexts that were in and populating that environment at the time in the story he was telling. But it was very interesting because he was talking about the family as a system. And there were several members of family. It wasn't just a single child. And there was one what they referred to as identified patient, which is what brought the family into therapy in the first place. That child has a problem. We have several very well-adjusted, healthy children. But that child has a problem. Well, when the therapist uh, listened to and tuned in to the dynamics of the family, they tried an experiment, as I recall. This is going back some years. And they changed the language of the, fa- of the parents from what was perceived by that patient, identified patient, the child, as a lie, and they inverted it. And they said, nope, nope, that's not the case. This is the case, which was much more, by the way, congruent with the child's understanding of reality, perception of reality. And the child ceased the psychotic behavior slash episode. Just like that. It, like, stopped. And if I'm not mistaken, and please I have to take this and speak about it with a grain of salt or two, because even though my memory may be very good, this is a long time ago. And, um, you know, I'm I'm kind of... Uh, bring the story back from the archives, but the gist is accurate. When they reinstituted the statement of what he perceived as a lie, he started to go into the psychotic symptomatology again. That is how actually important and serious our language is in relation to uh what we perceive. And so therefore it cannot be, should not be underestimated and it cannot be more heavily emphasized that what comes from above from a position designated as having authority speaks lies deceptions, half-truths, stories that have no basis in reality. There is something that happens in the mass consciousness. There's something that happens literally in the body that signals to us something is off. There is an antennae that we have that perceives misinformation. To varying extents, by the way, to varying extents. I'm going to suggest that there is a deep underlying intelligence, instinctive, that can pretty much tell if we're in danger, which is in the space of a lie, by the way, and someone who would lie could be deemed as dangerous, threatening, because if they're going to lie about this, What are they not going to lie about? And that has a threatening, endangering character to it. And 
We definitely see that here. On one afternoon, this fellow is slapping tariffs on the Chinese, on the French, on you know anybody he's thinking about, the Mexicans. And the next day, he goes up. I woke up on the other side of bed. I was feeling good. I had a little sex. Uh, forget those tariffs. Not to mention maybe his economics advisors say, don't do that. You're upsetting the apple cart. You're throwing off the trade balance. I know what you're trying to do by changing the trade balance with China. And there is something laudable about that, by the way. But you can't do it in one shot, and you don't do it as a threat. You do it as a result of rational discussion and negotiation so all parties can win. Unless your mode of operation is punitive, and then you're basically warlike and violent, and you are tr- using economics as a military weapon. And that's not kosher, although it's done all the time. There's probably more warfare being done economically than there is militarily on the face of the planet. But just put that aside for the moment. Here is some level of warfare not being perceived as such. It's being perceived instead as just a trade war. But indeed, the word war is there. It's not a trade conflict. It's not a trade skirmish. It's not a trade disagreement. It's a war. And indeed, it has really, truly the characteristics of war, just without the guns and the bullets. So think about this. In light of that story I told of creating literally a psychotic episode in the face and the presence of a perceived lie, we're being lied to literally dozens upon dozens upon dozens of times a day, including by not just our president, but by his cohorts and by the media itself. The media itself, indeed, including the largest papers and media networks of our time, are constantly framing the conversation in very specific, highly tailored ways to omit some very vital information and include information they want to craft their way. And it's usually corporatist in nature, and often it's patriotic in nature. Patriotic meaning a patriotism to the government that's not warranted. I'm not talking about a patriotism to, um, let's just say, a, a national ideal, although I'm not big on patriotism in any way, shape, or form, quite honestly. It's not a word that resonates with me whatsoever. But there are different types of patronage, if you will. And let's at least make that distinction. So from this point of view, the New York Times CNN, MSNBC, Fox, of course, AON, whatever, OAN, whatever that thing is. Um, They're, you know, even BBC are levels of deception by means of framing the conversation in very specific ways. There are certain underlying assumptions that Putin is bad, that uh, the that Syria 
is bad. The Syrian government is torturing and and spreading chemical warfare. And you know, this is not necessarily true. There's very little evidence of it, but it's a story that gets spun. It gets propagandized, and there are very few people who will challenge it. And if they do challenge it, where are they going to go to announce the challenge? They're certainly not going to be allowed on TV to do so publicly and nationally. <laughs> They're going to be writing an op-ed, and they probably won't get accepted because the whole thing is controlled. The narrative is controlled. Just today, and I can't say I know myself personally 100%, but from what I would consider a reliable source, it was stated that the New York Times has many of its stories vetted by the United States government, and that would really mean the intelligence agencies before released to the public. Now, what's that about? Since media is considered the fourth pillar, the fourth branch of government in as far, of a democracy, I should say, in as far as it is the watchdog of all watchdogs of government, because it was assumed by our forefathers, by our founding fathers, as they're called, um, Thomas Jefferson et al., that government officials, politicians, will get away with what they can, and they must be watched. Why do we have freedom of the press as, as the First Amendment? It's because it was known that people, unfortunately, will work behind the scenes to their own vested interests at the expense of everyone and everything else. And you could actually say this is the core of our international problem. This is the psychological and emotional key and core issue is trust. These folks, unfortunately, by and large, cannot be trusted. And our founding fathers knew that, and they blew the whistle on it, and they have amendments enshrined at the very top of the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, that states exactly what I'm saying, as a safeguard to we the people, because unfortunately, Fortunately, power corrupts, and we know that that's the case, and it goes on and on and on. So we've got to be so outrageously vigilant about these kinds of things. Economic stress. Economic stress is when the cards are not dealt fairly where there are only a few people on top that have... What was Bernie Sanders saying the other night at the climate crisis uh, CNN-based? Bless them for this. There is some good. Uh, a conference, in a sense, that they held just yesterday. And Bernie said, I think it was that two or three people own... It's like unbelievable. It's inconceivable. About half of the wealth in the United States. Um, I don't know. Even if it's 10 people, if it's 100 people, it's, it's just the 
in moderation, the disproportion is outrageous, the injustice. It's unjust because everything is skewed, including the laws, to advantage these people, to privilege the privileged, and nobody else. That, that tax cut, as it is rhetorically referred to, uh, promulgated by Trump for his own interest and his buddies and his cronies, was one of the largest thefts in daylight that has ever happened in this country. Theft under our eyes of over a trillion dollars to the already wealthiest people. And people go, oh, it's a tax cut. Oh, yeah, I'll get another $100 in my tax return. What? But Americans, what happened, America? What happened? There is a dearth of diligence, of thoughtfulness, of reflection, of maybe even caring. There's this almost an embodied apathy or uh, embraced ignorance that people will not let go of that are so busy with the trivia of daily life. I am very sorry to say this. I just see it all over the place and I personally feel graced and blessed because the people overall in my life are very diligent and very watchful and deeply caring about the nature of life, of society, of all sentient life, humans and non-humans alike, and awaken daily with a sense of what can I do today to make the world a better place? How within my sphere of influence I can do something to make the world a better place, to improve the lives of the people around me, of the animals around me. <laughs> well, it's, that's a fair argument. We're all animals, right? <laughs> um, of putting a smile on somebody's face on that level all the way to, can I write a letter to my congressman to influence his opinions and his votes so it will be for the good of all instead of for the narrow few. So this is an economic justice issue that we are uh, born into in many ways. And yes, indeed, there is some mobility. There is. And uh, even people of all races, uh, there's only one race, and it's the human race, and it's uh, a race we're losing, frankly, <laughs> but of all different um how do I say, categories, genders, and flavors, you know. Um, there is mobility, but it is also much more restricted for people who fall into certain categories, which is tragic. And we also know that that is, of course, uh, uh, the white male is the most privileged, and then it goes downstream from there. And, uh, yes, there are brilliant exceptions, and I love it, uh, but there's an overall tendency that we all know of, institutional genderism and racism. And, yes, things have changed rather 
dramatically over the past hundred years, and there shouldn't be any residue from the past, really, none, like zero. And yet there is a profound one, and uh, that's just the way it is. So we, of course, have to do something about that, and we are trying. So economic is if you don't have food for your table, if you don't have shelter over your head, if you don't have clothes on your back, if you don't have any form of medical uh, reserve, any kind of education, there will be problem in River City. There just will be, and there is. Then we look and swing over to environmental stress. Well, the number of climate refugees has become utterly frightening and profound. The story, as I've told it here on uh, this radio show a number of times, is, as I understand it, the entire issue in Syria uh, arose because farmers didn't have enough water to um, feed their crops, and they didn't therefore have enough, they didn't have enough uh, crops then, food, for the marketplace or even for their own families. And this led to marching and demonstrating and an uprising of different levels uh, to the Syrian government. And that was the beginning of the problems in Syria. Well, the same thing could be said for lots of places. If any of you heard my interview with Lester Brown, the environmental scientist, just a couple of weeks ago, on the disappearance of fresh water on this planet, you will be highly apprised of the damage that is being done. China has so little water in some of its northeastern areas that he said that 250 million people are being moved to southern China where there is greater amounts of water. 250 million people. I mean, that's almost more people than we have in this entire country. Iran is utterly hurt by water shortages. Egypt is another country. All over the world, in fact, to greater or lesser degrees, Lester Brown spells it out, and he is the co-founder of the of the famed World Watch Institute, going back to the 1970s. He has been an outspoken uh, voice for paying attention to all environmental issues and largely water. Wrote a book called Plan B and many others about these subjects. So environmental stress, the Amazon in flame, 73,000 or so fires, the lung of the earth, the other being the Congo, this is madness. Wildfires all over all over California. Friends of mine, by the way, are fire watchers. They sit in an, in a kind of a a tree nest and overlook thousands upon thousands of acres to keep their eye on spotting, identifying forest fires. And you know they work for the state, and this is their summer job. This is what they do. And it has gotten just outrageous what is going on. The entire town of Paradise, ironically named here, burned to the ground to a crisp. Well, it goes on and on and on and on. These are just some of the the 
highlights, you know, the things that have hit the news, but there is a groundswell of problems, and we know it. And it's not getting much better. In some instances, it's gotten worse. I happen to be part of several movements that are doing everything we can, and businesses, by the way, to change the action and change the uh, uprising of methane and carbon dioxide and sequester more and more of it. And we have, you know, our premium ultra uh, low-maintenance premium lawn seed that does this. We have a company that we're connected with that takes horse, uh, not horse, I'm sorry, cow manure and hog manure and bundles it by the ton and puts it through what's called an anaerobic digester and turns it into biogas that can fuel cars and trucks and heating and utterly replace fossil fuel. So there are a number of Excellent, excellent uh, technologies and projects that are afoot, replanting trees in the Amazon and elsewhere, uh, reforestation, um, the removal of Freon and a new level of refrigeration management, uh, Freon being the very top of Paul Hawkins' uh, book, Drawdown, as the most toxic element and contributor to greenhouse gases. So this is what's going on. We're, we're, we're literally sitting on a volcano, and um, it's erupting. It is erupting right under our, as we say in Chinese, our tukas. And we have to wake up and get into action, each of us according to our own Ability, each of us according to our own need and that of the collective. Where did I hear that before? <laughs> An old phrase ringing. We are seeing how capitalism certainly has some kind of pure ideological economic um, methodology or system does not work. Not in the form it's being used now. That is utterly clear. Whether you look at the environment, you look at fossil fuels, you look at the healthcare system, you look at big pharma, you look at big ag, look at big agriculture, uh, big chemistry, uh, the, chemi- the chemical industry. I mean, you know, however you look, you see this is not working. Compassionate capitalism, conscious capitalism, capitalism with a heart or Hazel Henderson and others have called it a love economy. You know, whatever words, uh, my interview with David Corton, which will be coming out soon, uh, we did on Zoom just a week ago, of re-examining and reconfiguring um, the measurements, the metrics of the economy, which are way more like, you know, what is the happiness quotient, what is the well-being quotient, uh, not just the quantitative measurement of GDP. This is absurd in this 21st century. It's crazy. Since when did money become a god? Well, this is the kind of uh, theme we have to disabuse ourselves of to get clear again and unaddict ourselves from the madness that has been raging like a wildfire across our nation and across our planet. 
in all societies have adopted our way of thinking and viewing. And everything is a race. And it's really not a race. It needs to be win-win. We know from neuroscience that cooperation and bonding through oxytocin is really what has kept us alive as a species. It hasn't been killing each other off in the uh, thought uh, attributed to Darwin, which is apparently not accurate at all, of survival of the fittest in that kind of dog-eat-dog kind of uh, uh, archetype. It's, It's not it. It's because we know how to engage each other. We know how to talk and communicate and create rapport and friendship and family and love and social bonding, all using a built-in hormone called oxytocin through smiling, through laughing, through entertainment, through humor, through the arts, through beauty, shared beauty. These are the ways that bring people together and want to put their lives out for each other because of the bonding factor Not because if you live and I live and there's only this amount of food, I'm going to get it. No. Uh -uh -uh. Uh-uh-uh. Share and share alike, just like we learned as children. That is actually what keeps us going. Anyway, I have covered these topics of how political, economic, and environmental stress lands on us and in us. And it's in the field. So even if we ourselves are leading a very healthy life uh, with uh, environmental toxins around us reduced to a minimum, our own carbon, our own personal carbon footprint is really small. Still, we live in a field. We live with other people. We live in cities and on and on. And we're part of a whole, whole big family. It's not a very healthy one either. And uh, it's our job, really, uh, to create greater health in the family. And that will help to sustain everything. But we're in trouble, my friends. I mean, we're in deep trouble, and it needs to be emphasized, and it should not be underestimated, the damage we have done already, the tipping points we have already passed that are not coming back, the species, the intense number of species that are now extinct. And, uh, you know, biologists, marine biologists, others say that we have already entered the sixth extinction. It's not like in the future. This is what it looks like. Massive species die off. Our own planet on fire. Reduction, vast reduction of fresh water. Not using our brain for a change. All of the above are all the symptoms of the sixth extinction. And that is indeed, we are poised in the direction of. Make no mistake about it. Don't try to make believe that's not the case. Because it is the case. We've had Dr. Guy McPherson on making that very clear. Dr. Carolyn Baker talking about collapse. Collapse psychology. We've had Lester Brown on. We've had Paul Hawken on. We've had Catherine Wilkinson on. His co author, co-editor of Drawdown. And while we don't have to cry every time we hear all the news, but we do want to get jettisoned into action. 
That's for sure. There are many actions that we can take. I strongly recommend people join up with the Pachamama Alliance. It's a fantastic, free, nonprofit, educational organization that is seeking initially to protect the Amazon and the headwaters of the Amazon and the Achuar people, the native people, uh, indigenous people to the Amazon. That was its initial intent and purport. But it has grown into a worldwide organization that is working on the level of individuals, families, corporations, communities, churches, synagogues, mosques, to educate people about, how do I put it, the nature of reality and how our, our world is burning up and how the integral nature of social, economic, political, and environmental justice actually forms one big weave. These are not separate and distinct. They are enmeshed, they are entangled, and we need to deal with each of them. And dealing with one is actually dealing with all in some measure. Best if we can approach all in some measure and work toward the middle, so to speak. So uh, that's one thing, and I also encourage you to be uh, part of a better world. Here you hear broadcasts, podcasts, television shows every single week. This has been going on since 1993, consistently, every single week. Where are we? Where? Okay, that's 26 years, my friends. And uh, I would strongly encourage you to recognize that we are truly committed to the health, sustainability, and well-being of our each person and of, I'm about to say, each planet of our planet. It's larger, more than that, indeed. So I want to just thank all of you for tuning in today and listening and getting a sense of where we are, of recognizing the impact of political, economic, and environmental stress on our health, on our well-being, on our literal physical body, on our immune system, on our ability to uh, upregulate proper uh, genetic information, our DNA, it gets activated or deactivated as a result of the stress we're feeling, the thoughts we're having, the emotions we're experiencing. This is the way it works. Our blood chemistry changes with every single thought. So think good ones. Feel love in your heart. Have fun. All the while realizing we are dancing at the edge, my friends. And one of the strongest ways, and what I consider one of the very finest, maybe finest of all, medicines, is living a life of purpose and vision and meaning. Where your values are aligned with your actions. And you wake up into that space every day. And you contribute to whatever space it is you occupy. But you're coming from that inward congruence towards something you care about. That keeps you alive. It keeps you youthful. It keeps you caring. It keeps your heart open. It keeps you disciplined and committed and very alive. And that's what we need. We need conscious, alive people to move this game forward in our direction of people who care about all people, not just a few. 
and care about all sentient beings, not just a few. And care about Earth as a living being, not as some inanimate uh, uh, object that happens to be perceived as holding wealth for the few through extraction technologies. What a way of thinking. What a sad way of thinking. If you were, if we were native people looking out at our beautiful planet, the trees and the birds and the flowers and the bees and everything, and to think of every, our beautiful Mother Earth, Pachamama, as a matter of dollars and cents, it just doesn't make sense. It's just no relationship. David Corton was, you know, beautifully articulate about that just the other day. Uh, and you will hear that interview in uh, short order. Um, yeah, it just doesn't reduce. It just doesn't make sense. And you see the deep, pathetic pathology underneath that kind of thinking. And that's not to denigrate the role of money in our society. No. No, 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 no. That's not the point at all. If you think that that's what I'm saying, you're misconstruing. But this should be abundantly clear. People and planet before profit and serving people and planet to make profit. Yeah, that's okay. In fact, that's good. Better that you do good and do well. That's good. Those are good values. That allows you to live and you to pay the rent and you to sustain you and your family and it allows the world to benefit through eco-friendly, eco-sensitive, sustainable services, products, technologies, things of the marketplace. Fine. Moderate profit. No killing. Win, win, win. Everybody has to win. So on that note, we actually have a series of really quality products available through our website. We are building a new one. We have something called Products for a Better World. Uh, we have a high-level organic nutritional supplements. We have uh, mind-body stress management services. We have my work as a coach for personal and business. We have energy balancing services, very sophisticated, very interesting services. I would invite you to visit our websites, www.abetterworld.tv, abetterworld.tv. If you receive the newsletter already, that's fantastic. And if you don't, sign up for it. It's free. It only comes out once a week. You won't be bombarded at all. It announces who my guest is on the radio if I have one, and who my guest is on TV, if I have one. And uh, it has blogs, it has information in that newsletter that can be very valuable to you. And on the website, abetterworld.tv and www.mitchellraben.com, moi, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-R-A-B-I-N.com, for some of the counseling and coaching services 
And remember that we are a nonprofit, a 501c3, and if you are able to make a donation, that helps us stay afloat in an otherwise sinking world. <laughs> it allows us to sustain. So I want to just thank you all again for tuning in. I know you've got a lot of places you could spend your time, and I'm I'm thrilled and honored that you decide to spend time with us from all the different corners of the world, from Australia, New Zealand, and uh, Taiwan. We've had people listen in from India, UK, Europe, South America, Mexico, South Africa, Philippines. Wonderful. Just wonderful. So please tell your friends about what we're doing here at A Better World. Become part of the community and family. And I look forward to seeing you all next week. Thank you.